Good morning. Well, I have as the title for the message this morning, Dealing with Death or the World's Greatest Bailout. Now, that ought to get some people's attention. It is actually interesting that, that your ti- the title of a message, when, uh, when you're posting them on the Internet, it does have a way of getting uh, more, uh, more interest. So uh, I didn't want to have a, a dull, uh, dead title for this morning. When I was, uh, I, I noticed this article on the web this week uh, by Diane Mapes, and it was called uh, uh, The Final Touch, A Cosmetic Lift for Your Funeral. And I, I have to admit, it just it was one that I had to read. And it was indeed amazing. You, you know, gone are the days when, when, as I have said to my wife, you know, find an old pine box and plant me in the backyard. <clears throat> this is a, a time when, when cosmetic, uh, almost cosmetic surgery is done in preparation for your funeral. People want to look better in that casket than they did in life. And the thing that frightens me is if, if Jeanette had that done to me, people would wonder if they had the right guy in the box. <laughs> this guy is good looking. <laughs> What's going on? But, but they literally, they, they do Botox, they do, you know, lip fattening and, and all this kind of stuff, wrinkle removal. And you're thinking, you, you know, it is important to prepare for death. But that is not going to cut it. You are not going to look good to God, you know, if you haven't been under the blood. And so that's what we're, uh, we're talking about today, is dealing with death. I raised the question, should this uh, message be R-rated? You know, in many ways, uh, in, in, the, in the mood of our culture, these are very unpopular subjects. When you talk about blood... And you talk about a violent death on the cross of Calvary. That is not a very popular uh, concept. You think about the, the way in which this culture resists uh, the death of animals uh, in, in a way that's just a little bit extreme. And, and I guess there's a hypocrisy in it in the sense that in some ways we love violence. For example, have you ever noticed on, on the television programs, how many television programs are now focused around an autopsy? Now, do you really, do you and I really want to be there? Uh, you know, it's just, it's just amazing that somehow we not only get to see a dead body laying out there, but they open it up for us and let us look at it. And somehow that kind of violence doesn't seem to raise any great popular uh, outcries. Surely there is all kinds of violence. We're out to save the spotted owls and the porpoises and the whales, and yet the hypocrisy of it is that we're shedding the blood of innocent children. Just for example, the partial birth abortion, and and in all of the the hoopla about saving animals, nobody seems very concerned about saving human life. Why is that? But when it comes to the violent death of our Lord Jesus, when it comes to the bloody religion of Israel, the world looks at that and says, that's just too violent for me. So there are some who are going to have difficulties, and we just have to deal with that. 
I have a, in, the, in your notes of where we've been and where we're going, and I, I'm going to sort of expand that a little more than I have on your notes. But let's just, let's just think through, uh, if we can, the book of Hebrews up to this point and see where we've been and where that's going to lead us. Chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews are really about the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to take it in those terms, you could say chapter 1 focuses more on his sufficiency in terms of his deity. He is fully God, and he manifests all of the attributes and traits of God. When you come to chapter 2, the focus kind of changes, and now it's his sufficiency in his humanity. He has taken on human flesh. This thought occurred to me as, I, as we were sitting here in worship this morning, uh, that, that this is a very appropriate thing for the writer to the Hebrews to be dealing with the incarnation of our Lord so early in the book, at least if you read J.I. Packer and agree with him. Packer, in his book on the incarnation, in, in uh, his chapter on the incarnation in Knowing God, chapter 5, if I remember right, uh, he says this, Once we grasp the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we grant his incarnation, his coming and taking on human flesh, then nothing else in the Gospels should surprise us. Given the incarnation of our Lord, nothing should seem amazing to us after that fact in the sense that it's inconsistent with that. The incarnation sets the stage. And that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews does. Gives us the incarnation of our Lord in chapter 2. In chapters 3 and 4, we see the insufficiency of men. And, and primarily, the author is looking back through Psalm 95, and he's looking back at the incidents of Israel in the wilderness and, and uh, their misbehavior there, and basically says, we're a miserable bunch. They were and we are, and we're in trouble because we're really not any different from them. At the end of chapter 4, he starts to move toward the solution, and that is the high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he moves into chapter 5 and begins to talk about the Lord Jesus, who is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But as he gets into that conversation, he sort of pauses and says, I can see that glazed-over look in your eyes. Somehow, when I talk about these deeper, weightier, meatier things of God's Word, I see that glassy look, and I realize this is over your heads. You're out of your depth. You're not used to dealing with the meat of Scripture, but instead of caving into that pressure, he says, I'm moving on anyway. And you guys better listen up, and you better beware from chapter 6, because taking the things of God lightly is a most dangerous thing to do. So the exhortation of chapter 6. In chapter 7, he moves back to our Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, the new covenant and the things of our Lord Jesus Christ are superior because we have a better priest. We have a priest who is of the order of Melchizedek, a better high priest, a better order of priesthood in chapter 7. In chapter 8, we have better promises, the promises of the new covenant. And you remember he goes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, and cites those and says, these are the promises of the new covenant. They are unconditional promises. They are promises that God has vowed to fulfill in spite of us. In chapter 9, he says, we have a better place. I talked about 
the, the difference between the den and the parlor. And as I was thinking about and reading through this text again, it occurred to me when he says that there is no access, we don't have access as long as the outer uh, tabernacle, part of the tabernacle is there. And I thought to myself, there is no door. There is no door between the outer tabernacle and the inner tabernacle. I mean, can you imagine with kids? I can imagine with grandkids. If you had a door, can you imagine they'd be going through that door every, you know, just constantly? And, and even if you had just curtains that sort of draped, there's always the chance that somebody's going to slip through there. Only the priests could work in that outer tabernacle and only the high priest could go into the inner tabernacle, but the whole uh, architecture of the tabernacle basically said, keep out. So there wasn't a great way of access. And what he says is, through the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we now have a better place, a place of access for all, not just the great high priest, not just the priests, But every believer has access because, of course, the veil has been torn. That's going to come in chapter 10. But the veil has been torn, and now we have access to him. We have a better place of access to God in early chapter 9. And then when we pick up in verse 15, he's going to introduce the subject, or at least carry on the subject, we have a better sacrifice. So a better priest, a better place, a better sacrifice... Uh, that he will be talking about, and that is where we pick up in our subject today. Let's talk about the necessity of death in verses 15 through 22. And and uh, let's look at verse 15. It says, and my, my translation in that Bible says, and so, that's too, a little too wimpy for me. Let's just go with therefore, because that's really what it is and what most everybody else does. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance he has promised, since he died to set them free from the violations committed under the first covenant. Therefore, because of the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ, he now has become the mediator of the new covenant, that better covenant for us. Now, I say in the notes... Judaism really had difficulty with this whole idea of suffering that's being introduced and death, especially violent suffering and death. It was one thing for a Jew to turn in the book of Psalms and to pray an imprecatory psalm on his enemies. They could deal with violence in that regard. Oh, Lord, let their children be dashed on the rocks. They could really get pretty wild about that stuff in terms of what they wanted on their enemies. But they had difficulties especially when it came to the Messiah. 1 Peter chapter 1. Remember, Peter says the prophets of old, as they looked at their own writings, they tried to figure out how is the matter of suffering related to the matter of glory. It seemed like those were two separate categories that had no reconciliation. And so they looked at their own writings to try and discover what that was. And even the angels are looking down with anticipation saying, I sure can't wait to see how this works. And, and then you have uh, John chapter 12. That's the passage where our Lord is really in John, his last conversation with unbelieving Jews in, in Jerusalem. And he speaks about the Son of Man must be lifted up. 
And they understand that means to die. And they say to Jesus, wait a minute, when we read the law, it says that the Messiah must live forever. How is it that you talk about dying as Messiah, but the law says that he must live forever? Again, they couldn't see the, the joining together of those two seemingly opposite issues of his death and his eternal life. And good old Peter in Matthew chapter 16. After he makes his confession, you are the Christ. Then Jesus says, yes, I am. And that means I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter says, uh-uh, that is not part of the package. So when we come to this matter of suffering and death, recognize this is not a warm, fuzzy subject for anybody, including the Jews and even the disciples. Therefore, when you come to texts like Psalm 22, my God, beginning, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, and then you go to Isaiah 52 and 53 and you see the death of our Lord. There's a way in which they had to compartmentalize those off. And it's not surprising to me when the Lord asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They had different, different categories. The prophet, Deuteronomy 18. And then they would talk about the Christ and whatever. But they couldn't put all of those pieces together. And yet that is precisely what happens in our Lord Jesus. So here we have this, this difficult issue of the suffering of our Lord Jesus. And indeed, it's the, it's the main topic of our text here in, in Hebrews chapter 9. So the argument in chapter 9 up to this point is, has been that there is a better place Better than that old tabernacle with its restrictions and its barriers where the average believer, the average uh, Israelite could not enter. We now have a place, as it were, we've been invited into the parlor where God dwells uh, through the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the greatest bailout of all time in verse 15. Here's the interesting thing. The work of Jesus Christ is presented here, among other things, it's, it's presented here as that work which cancels out the sins of the past committed under the old covenant. Now, I, I don't, I'm not really an econ- you know I'm not an economist, I don't understand all that's going on, but I do see and hear a little bit about the bailout talk. And, and basically, what I hear is a loan. And and the reality is, wherever we are, we are because a lot of people have made a lot of mistakes and some people have made a lot of sins and we're in a huge mess. And unless we clean up the mess of the past, it's not going to be a solution. This, it says, is, is the way in which God cleans up the mess of the past. Now, l- let me put that in different terms. Suppose that we could uh, uh, change the the uh, oh the look of, of of Israel's sin, and we could measure it in monetary terms. The, the, the scriptures tell us that every year at the Day of Atonement, the sins of that past year, in a sense, are put off. They're not paid. They're just put off. And so in that sense, you, you, you give a kind of a, a bailout and you let them operate for one more year. But at the end of that year, you're just deeper in debt. So all this period of time, Israel, if, if sin equaled money that you owed in debt, 
you're just piling up this huge astronomical debt figure and every year it's a good feeling to know that you've got one more year to operate. It's a bad feeling to know you've got a pile of debt. And what this text tells us is when Christ shed his blood, he not only shed his blood for us and for all of our sins, he shed his blood to cover the debt to cancel the debt, if you would, Israel's huge national sin debt uh, by his atoning work on the cross of Calvary. And then he says in verses 16 and 17, death is actually a necessity, and he's going to play that whole thing out. Death is not some accident that came upon our Lord Jesus because he was caught off guard. Death was the purpose of our Lord's coming, and it is the means by which men are saved. And so he says, first of all, look at a will. Now, I, I, I need to put a little asterisk on this. Some of the, of the Bible scholars say that we ought not to speak of this in terms of a will, but just in terms of a covenant. I, I'm going to be with those who have taken the position that the word that is used here can be used both of a covenant and of a will. And it seems to make sense. It's an illustration. But what he's saying is, when someone writes a will, and by the way, we all ought to be doing that, but when we have a will, that will does not go in effect until after we're dead. Is that not right? And so you, you make arrangements for the disposition of, of certain inheritance that will go, and you, you specify that. Now, as a general term... In a general way, you don't negotiate that. That is, most of us do our wills in the privacy of, of, of our homes or whatever, and we don't sit down with the family and friends and say, let's, let's all jockey for who wants how much. This is something that we decide, just as God has decided how he will dispose, as it were, of his grace toward men. A will is, is written to dispose of things, and that is something that is, that is one way. You decide it, and that's the way it's going to be. But it doesn't get activated until after you've died. I haven't been involved in probate very much, but one of our neighbors, when her husband passed away, I went down to the courthouse, and one of the things they want is a death certificate. And that's what the, that's what the writer is saying. A will doesn't do you any good. It isn't executed until you can prove they're dead. And when you prove they're dead then that will is executed. So he's saying, in the, in the real secular world in which we live, you got to die for a will to be of effect. It is the same Greek term that he's using, but now he speaks of that term in terms of the covenant. And he says, death is also required with respect to a covenant. It is required to inaugurate and execute that covenant. There must be a death. So the first thing he does in verses 18 through 22 is he shows how that took place with respect to the old Mosaic Covenant. Mainly, and I think most everybody would agree, mainly here he's talking about those things that we read in Exodus chapter 24. When, when God has given his law and, and, and Moses has written it down, he hasn't gotten it on stone yet, but, but it, it's written down and he, and he spells out the, the covenant stipulations with the people of Israel and they say, that's right, that's what we're going to do. Then he says, those things are going to be sprinkled. The covenant is going to be inaugurated with blood, that is, which has come about as the result of death. And so he says in verse 18, so the, even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood, 
For when Moses had spoken every command to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you to keep. And both the tabernacle and all the utensils of worship, he likewise sprinkled with blood. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything, there's just very few exceptions here, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So he's saying death was necessary in the old covenant to inaugurate that covenant. And that's where the sprinkling of the blood The sacrifice of those animals came, and so there was a death that was necessary even with regard to the old covenant. And so he concludes, without the shedding of blood, that is, without death, there is no forgiveness of sins. Even under the old covenant, sins were dealt with through the death, sacrificial death of animals and the use of the sprinkled blood. Now in verse 23 through verse 28, we see him speaking of death and its relationship to the new covenant. He begins by reminding us that the early prototypes, those things that were portraying a greater eternal realities, those prototypes, that is the furnishings of the temple and all of those things that were sprinkled with blood, all of those things had to be cleansed or purified by blood. And he said, but if that's true of those things, the heavenly realities have to be sprinkled by, by, by some better sacrifice. There has to be something better than what was offered, better than the, the, the blood of bulls and goats. Some better sacrifice must be used to inaugurate the new covenant. Now, the difficulty is not seeing how that was done. The, the difficulty is, is, is in seeing what he means when he says that even the things... Uh, in the heaven need sacrifices that are better than these. Verse 23. So it was necessary for the sketches of the things in heaven to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things, that is, the true realities that they represent, the heavenly things themselves required better sacrifices than these. Well, why did anything in heaven need to be cleansed? Isn't that the impression you get? Something up there <laughs> needs, needs purification. You're saying, why? Okay, there are, there are several ways of handling that. One is, some would say, well, Satan was there and he messed the place up. <laughs> it's sort of like my grandson out in the back room. Doesn't take long, boy, they can make a mess. That's true. That Satan, of course, was, has been in heaven like you see him with Job and you see him in Revelation chapter 12 as the accuser of the brethren. I'm not sure that totally satisfies me in terms of why the cleanup, so to speak, was needed. Fallen angels, yes, there are those celestial powers that also have had heavenly access and, and certainly uh, their sin has some contaminating element perhaps. The most popular view that I've seen, uh, and, and it is pretty widespread, is that what's being spoken about, the cleansing, is really the cleansing of the saints. That we're going to be in, in the heavenly presence and the, and the saints need to be cleansed. And, and I have to say to you, I've really tried hard. 
I honestly have. I tried hard to get my mental arms around that, and it, and it just doesn't fit to me. Uh, for example, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 55, it says that sinful flesh cannot in, enter into heaven. These mortal bodies cannot enter into heaven. So they must die. That's his argument. The, the, the physical bodies in which we dwell that have been dominated by sin, these bodies have to be left behind. We can't get to heaven in these. And so they're left behind or at, 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 the, at the rapture will be transformed, but then they'll be different bodies, not the old ones. So it doesn't look to me like when believers get to heaven, they need a cleanup. And, and in fact, from Ephesians 5, it looks to me like the cleanup process is going on now. There is a sense in which the death of Christ has cleansed us, but there's also that Ephesians 5 text that talks about the husband is concerned about the purity of his wife just as Christ is cleansing his bride and preparing her for himself. Or when I read in Revelation about the way in which the bride is going to meet the church, is going to meet the, the, the bridegroom, where there is no death and there's no suffering, I don't see a need for cleanup there. And so I have difficulty finding that it's describing that. And what we read in Hebrews 9 is seems to me is spatial. It's not people. It's talking about the heavenlies. When Christ passed through the heavenlies, in fact, I trace the word through the book of Hebrews, I can't find anywhere where it doesn't have this spatial Idea. He passed through the heavens, and now he is in the heavens, and the heavens are the, the place where our Lord carries on his high priestly ministry, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, here's my best take, and, and, and you may find a better explanation. I hope that you do, and then you'll call me and tell me what it is. But it seems to me that what you see in, in the old prototype is that there is this ritual purification that takes place through the sprinkling of blood that has come about through the death of the animals. So the old covenant and the old covenant ministry was inaugurated through sprinkled blood. It seems to me that what this is saying is the new covenant and new covenant ministry is inaugurated through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And therefore, he has gone about and just as the tabernacle and all the furnishings and all the things, including the people, by the way, they were cleansed in preparation for this covenant to go into effect and and be carried out. And so that's the way in which I look at it, that this is the cleansing of that place in the sense of the ritual purification that takes place in preparation for that ministry to uh, commence. All right, let's follow along in, and, and then and talk about the uniqueness of the sacrificial death and cleansing of our great high priest. The how it takes place is what spells out why it is so much better and why it is so unique. There is, in verse 23, the offering of better sacrifices that are are given, certainly better than the animals that have been offered up by the high priest. There is a better sanctuary, and, and I would say that is the better the place of access that he's talked about earlier in chapter 9. There is a better place where now we can enter into the presence of God and our Lord is seated at his right hand as our mediator. There is a, a sacrifice that is offered only once 
Remember, the, the author says, if it wasn't that way, if he had to offer sacrifices like the Old Testament priests did, then you'd offer them every year from the very beginning until the end. But he only offered his sacrifice once because it was effective. It was superior to the sacrifices of the priests and the, and the Levitical order. He offered his own blood, verses 25 and 26, not the blood of sacrificial animals, not like the priest who could not offer something of themselves but had to offer these sacrifices. He offered his own blood. And by that, verse 26, he put away sin. Now, there is something the old covenant just couldn't do. Sin is now dealt with. That's what he said. He has paid off the debt that accumulated through all of those old covenant days. That debt has now been paid off and sin has been dealt with in a permanent way, which results in the consummation of the ages, the consummation of God's plan and the inauguration now of a whole new order. So let's go to verses 27 and 28 where I say that's where the dots connect. That's where you have the death of our Lord laid alongside of the death of men. And our Lord's death gives a whole new sense and understanding of our death if we're believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says it is appointed for men. I think I need to lean on that for a minute. It is appointed for men. God has decreed it is going to be, and what he describes here is not something we vote on. It is not something where we have our choice or our preferences. This is the way it is going to be. It is appointed for men to die. So far, I've seen no exceptions to that. Even Lazarus, he got a little longer run at it, but he's gone. So every man is appointed to die, and he is appointed to die once. I put a little note to myself, no reincarnation here. You know, it's, it would be very different if you said it's appointed to men to die, but then your system said, so you go around another time and give it another shot. It doesn't say that. You are appointed to die once. And after that death comes the judgment. Boy, that takes care of those people who think that when you die, that's the end of it all. Nothing happens from there. That is so far from true. When men die, they die into judgment. They must stand before God and, and face the judgment that is rightly theirs for their sin. Now he talks about the death of Christ. The similarity is Christ also died. He died as a man and he died once. That was part of what the author was saying. He doesn't die over and over and over again, one, because he doesn't need to, and two, because it's appointed unto men to die once. Christ only needed to die once for the sins of men. And he does so to bear the sins of many, not to bear his judgment, to bear our judgment. And then it says he will return a second time and he comes for salvation for all of those who eagerly wait for his return. Isn't that great? Now, it's interesting that he doesn't say just for all who believe, although that would certainly be true. What he says is those who he's coming to save are those who are looking for his salvation. Are they not? When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's looking for our Lord's return. 
It eagerly awaits it because we want to be in God's presence. Our consciences have been cleansed. We don't have to hide in the bushes with fig leaves. He has cleansed us and we yearn to be with him and we yearn for him to come and be with us so that his death gives us that hope of eternal salvation. Okay, let's talk about a few things uh, if we can in conclusion. The good news is that the curse has become the cure. Isn't that great? When you look in the book of Genesis and you see the consequence of sin, God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we know that men die spiritually as well as die physically. But when you think about the curse, that is the curse of death, in one sense, it's a very gracious thing, is it not? Can you imagine fallen men living forever? Can you imagine, I should say, can you imagine living forever as a fallen person? Not such a pleasant thought, really. And that's why, remember, God kept men from returning to the garden lest they should eat of the tree of life and live forever. Eternal life for a sinner is hell. Eternal life for a believer is paradise. And so he says, the curse, or by inference he says, the curse has been turned to the cure. The reality is someone did need to die. The wages of sin is death. The beauty of that ugly, horrible, bloody death of our Lord, portrayed over centuries by that bloody sacrifice. I mean, I don't know how big the pipe would have to be from the temple into the valley with the blood that came from those sacrifices. But if you think about the number of sacrifices and the quantity of blood, it was a very bloody affair. And yet... That bloody, ugly death of our Lord is the means by which the curse has been dealt with and that now becomes the cure. Now, this is also why the gospel is an offense. People, if they recognize rightly, the consequences for sin are proportionate with the sin itself. Jeanette was reading the paper this morning. And she said that there was a, an article where a woman had, had a suitor who had been uh, courting her and she had been saying to him, go away. And in his anger, he threw acid in her face. And she apparently is standing before the court and asking the po- court to mete out his punishment, acid in the face. Now, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Justice says that the punishment must fit the crime, Right. And part of the reason why we don't like the ugliness of the sacrificial system, we don't like the ugliness of the violence and the death, is because it tells us how bad it is, how bad our sin is, how great the penalty must be that is paid for us. And yet the good news is the bailout is here. That's what the cross is about. The cross isn't about God floating us alone. Hoping we do better. I'm sorry, I I sound cynical. I am cynical. (laughs) You know, it's not loaning losers money. Hoping somehow they'll change from losers to winners. It's giving losers a gift. Irrelevant to their production, their work 
It's something that God gives to us. He pays off that massive debt that is ours and gives us a relationship with himself. The problem is we must admit we're bankrupt. It it, it was kind of interesting. I, I hate to say this. But I'll say it anyway. There was a certain measure of pleasure in watching these the heads of the three great motor companies grovel. And, and, and you can't say anything else. You can't go in with your head held high and talk about what a raving success you've been. The only thing you can say is we messed up or somebody messed up and, and, and we desperately need help. It's not flattering to our egos, folks, but when we go to God, we got to tell him we're bankrupt. And we got to tell God that if we were let go on for another five years, we'd only be worse, not better. It's only through his grace. And so we must ask for and accept a gift, no payback, a gift that covers all of our debt. And that's the kind of... Uh, Solution that gives us hope and joy. The disaster of falling away. If the old system only led to bankruptcy, if the debt only kept piling up and never being reduced, who would want to go back to a system that only brought condemnation? The only system that brings salvation is that which our Lord Jesus, as our great high priest, has brought to pass. I want to say a word about those of us who observe communion. There are those uh, in other uh, elements of, of what we would call Christianity who think that the Lord Jesus is sacrificed time after time after time, that somehow you redo the death of our Lord. This text says that's not true. Our Lord died once. If you're going to wear a cross, wear an empty cross because he paid it all. It's done. It's finished. It's not going on week after week. And when you look at the text, because we observe communion every week, it is a remembrance of what he has done and what he has finished. It is not. I remember one time in a, in a Lord's Supper meeting, somebody stood up and said, this is a funeral service. It is not. It is not observing somehow the death over and over again. It is remembering that he died once for all and it is done. And it is a joyful remembrance, and according to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, it is a proclamation of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a re-crucifixion of our Lord. Well, there are three appearings that you see in, in our text. In verse 26, he appeared to put away sin once for all. In verse 24, he appears in God's presence as our great mediator. And in verse 28, he will appear again, this time to bring salvation to those who wait for him, the three appearances of our Lord and how wonderful they are. So let me just say this to you, again, coming back to the, uh, the, the facelift for your funeral. It really won't do you any good to take the wrinkles out. Folks, what will do you good is to look God, to look good to God because of Jesus Christ. That's the way to prepare for death. The way to prepare for death is to accept the death of Jesus Christ, that bloody, awful death in one sense, that paid the terrible debt that we could never pay, 
That is the debt that he has paid. And we look good to God. All the wrinkles are gone. All the wrinkles are gone because we've been cleansed by the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what this is about. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way in which you looked forward and anticipated his death through all those ritual sacrificial offerings. Thank you that the Lord Jesus willingly and obediently came to earth, took on humanity to die and to die that ugly death. I simply pray that the people who were here in the hearing of my voice would accept and embrace the death of the Lord Jesus as that which bails out the debt of their sin. Pray that if there's any that has not trusted in him, that you would draw them to yourself. And I pray that we would eagerly wait for the day of your return when you will not come as what appears to be a helpless infant. You would come as the triumphant Lord to claim your bride. In Jesus' name, amen.